The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. It's the spin! I am standing on the outfield at the Oval and I have really enjoyed today. I've spent the final day of the Ashes basking in bright sunshine and it turns out my ideal day at the cricket is one where England have an insuperable lead, take early wickets and never look in any doubt to win the test. If I've learned anything about myself throughout this summer, it's that I don't handle jeopardy well. The series finished about an hour ago, and if you haven't heard the result, England won it to all. I'm allowing myself my first beer of the day, and at this stage I'd normally be telling you who we're going to hear from, but it really depends on who's free to have a drink with me. I'll just sit here with my cooler and see who takes the bait. It's the... It's the... It's the... It's the the spin! The Ashes is over, and with it, England's cricketing summer. At some point, we'll debate whether Steve Smith is better than Bradman, whether Joe Denley has a future in the England team, and just how much cricket is too much cricket. For now, though, let's take a minute to appreciate the glorious summer we've just experienced together. All done now? Let's get on with the debate. It's the spin! I'm Emma John and this is The Spin, the cricket podcast that finally knows how it feels to be an international cricket captain. Yes, we're absolutely knackered too. We've swapped our usual tabletop game of Test Match for an actual Test Match. Today I'm sitting with all of my guests in the stands at the Oval, looking out at the ground where Australia have just lifted a replica of the urn and everyone got a nice medal for taking part. And you might even be able to hear people cleaning up in the, in the rows around us. My guests today deserve their own medals after their efforts this season. Dan Norcross and Ali Mitchell, who have spent the last four and a half months of their lives following this England team. And yes, I've brought the framed picture of Michael Atherton with me. He sat down to my right. And yes, yes, it will be incredibly awkward if the actual Michael Atherton happens to walk past. Uh, Just in case you're wondering where all the Aussies have gone, we will hear from them later. But for now, we're going to concentrate on England. And after a long day in the press box, it's only right we should do some stretches. So Dan and Ali, here's your warm down. Who has been England's second best player of the series after Ben Stokes? Dan's just pointed at me as if to say, (laughs) I'm not having that question. That's all yours. Um, is it Rory Burns? Well, there's not a right answer. I mean, (laughs) you can choose yours. (laughs) I thought that was like a statistically based question, you know, on on runs scored or I don't know what. Um, Who's been the... the, No, actually, I'm going to say Stuart Broad. and, And possibly the most improved as well from perhaps what expectations were at the start. So how's that for a start of a 10? I think that's great. I think he'd be my pick, actually. So now, Dan, I don't know where you're going. Oh, well, okay. well it's very easy for me. I'm going with Jofra Archer. He got one wicket fewer. It's his debut series. I don't think an Englishman has taken that many wickets in their debut series. He's taken fifers. He's on honours boards already. At the beginning of this season, a long time back, in the mists of time, a lot of us were very excited about Jofra Archer. And some wise counsel, we thought, would say, well, can he really cut it? We've only seen him in T20 leagues. He ends up a World Cup winner. He ends up with 22 wickets. I'm with Ali. I think Stuart Broad has bowled better than we any of us expected. 
But Jofra Archer has given us a glimpse into the future and I think we're going to talk about him for uh, at least the next decade. Is it too early in the podcast to say moments of the series? Because I was asked that a little earlier and my moment of the series would be based around Jofra Archer simply for, not, and I'm not saying the moment he hits Steve Smith, but his first spell when he hit those speeds, when he played at Lords, and we all went, oh, after 200s at Edgebaston, this contest might be a bit more even than we first thought. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, yeah, if I was picking moments of the series, that and Headingley are the things that are yeah. going to remain with us, I think. Obviously, oh, totally. Headingley. I mean, you could feel it in the crowd. I went and sat out with the crowd at the Lords Test match. And this was just a completely novel experience for almost everybody, except the ones who are old enough to have seen Jon Snow. Mm -hmm. We were talking about a fast bowler, an English fast bowler, properly fast. I don't mean... 89, 90 miles an hour. I mean, 95. When it got to 95, the gasps. Mm. And then he started to imagine what was possible. How many bones could he break? <laughs> and then we realised, actually, there's a bit more responsibility comes with that. Yeah. And there were other gasps that came with it. But it was, it was a brilliantly complex moment. And uh, like I say, I mean, I just think this is a guy that we're going to revel in for ages. And it's, it's not a trite thing to say, I think, that his ethnicity is also really important in this. I think it's just a wonderful story that uh, the Afro-Caribbean community in, in England used to be such an important part of cricket. When I was growing up, it was massive. And it's disappeared slightly, actually, from cricket. And see Joffrey Archer back as a figurehead for that, I, I just find it absolutely wonderful. He's got everything, he's got the tricks, and he takes wickets with knuckleballs. He took, yes. he took a wicket the other day <laughs> with like a 65 mile per hour ball. So it's not just all machismo, it's subtlety, it's craft, it's great to watch. I should qualify that when I said moment of the series, Joffrey Archer, it's because the person who'd just gone before me had said Ben Stokes at Headingley. <laughs> just, just to qualify. <laughs> and an Australian had already picked one of Steve Smith's well, many yes. centuries. <laughs> Um, so, at a quarter past six here at the Oval, England beat Australia by 135 runs, leaving us with just a few remaining questions. Why the heck didn't England pick Sam Curran earlier? Will we see Jimmy Anderson in an England shirt again? Who gave Steve Smith the flu and is it too late to get them a knighthood? <laughs> and can next season possibly live up to this one? But first... It is the end of a long international summer. England have won the World Cup, drawn the Ashes and failed to regain the urn. How do you feel about what you've seen, Ali? I feel at the end of this match, I felt uplifted. It was a drawn series, the first since like the early 1970s, in fact. But yes, the urn is still with Australia and they celebrated it as if it was a one series. And I think rightly so for them because of the 18 years of, of hurt they've had of not retaining an Ashes on English soil. So they celebrated very hard. Arguably, England have the, the beneficiary of that at this test match because it felt as if there was only a three-day turnaround between games. And yes, there was only a three-day turnaround between matches. But yeah, I do feel as if... I know the World Cup was, was won at Lords. But the Oval was, in fact, my first uh, World Cup game I did. I was here the morning after the World Cup victory when the team paraded the trophy wearing dark glasses and clutching cups of highly caffeinated coffee. <laughs> and the outfield was strewn with children. And you thought, yeah, this is what it's about. There was very few security people. If they were, they were in plain clothes and kind of well hidden. And the kids were just allowed to mill around and be close to the players, touch the World Cup, touch Owen Morgan, touch Joffrey Archer and touch Ben Stokes. And now we're at the Oval, and this is always the end of term ground, isn't it? It has been for, for many a year. And yeah, I feel sad that it's over, 
but uplifted and I feel like it has been a game-changing summer hopefully for the exposure of the game and for the new heroes that have been created. It has been the best summer since 2005 hasn't it Dan? It's been better than that. I genuinely think it's been better than that because the engagement the engagement we've had from the base that we've had I mean Ali and you and I know what it's like trying to explain to people that cricket is great and something about this summer has just got everybody involved Twitter was lit up with grandmothers laughing at England winning the World Cup you know people going berserk over Ben Stokes all the messages we got on TMS from you know what were you doing when this happened and that happened is everybody suddenly realized that cricket was superb again and we spend our lives trying to preach this message and it was we were repaid in spades it was it was absolutely awesome and that's not just about England's performance I mean let's be clear the World Cup was about Pakistan Bangladesh India their fans in this ground and my most exciting game I think I was at was New Zealand against Bangladesh here at the Oval. Oh, where I was here for that as well. It was rocking, yeah. wasn't it? Upstairs. On the, yep. It was absolutely berserk. And there were tigers and there were sorts of people that you never normally see at English cricket grounds. And I just, I'm, I'm deeply sad that it's over because we're not going to see a summer like it again. Whatever we say, you know, you will, will next year. No, it can't, you know. However brilliant or not brilliant the 100 is. The fact is that two, three match series between England and Pakistan and the West Indies is not going to really cut the mustard after everything we've done but sport always struggles with that because it always goes in cycles i do though think that we've been treated some exceptional quality cricket as well i think we live in a golden age of fast bowling and we've spent a lot of time whining about how good the batting is when i was a kid i used to how watch the west the batting well exactly <laughs> exactly but I've, I've sat here in 1980 84 88 watching the west indies obliterate england but people forget that actually the West Indies got blown away as well by England's bowlers. Willis and both of them were taking wickets. And what we're seeing at the moment is the best fast bowling units around the world. And they came together in the World Cup. We saw glimpses of it then and we saw it in the ashes. The Australian pack of fast bowlers is thrilling to watch. England have got their own. South Africa have got their own. New Zealand, India. And it makes cricket that much more vital when you have fast bowling. And it's not all about scoring runs. And you're seeing wickets. And that's what engages people. And I think the other thing is just being here and realising that this place was full for a dead rubber is kind of awesome. And yeah. it didn't even feel like a dead rubber, did it? By the end, it really felt like a very live match. We, it felt so exciting. After, I honestly felt a little bit flat after Old Trafford. I don't know if anybody else felt a bit uh, flat. It was flat as a pancake. It's gone, yeah. And, and <laughs> this is what beating Australia means, even in a one-off <laughs> match, if you like. It really does mean something. And, and the fact that that England team prevented Australia from winning the series. Yes. I mean, the urn is, is, is a little critical, crucial, valuable, well, not the 299 one in the Lord's shop that they hold up, <laughs> but, but the urn is a trophy, and yes, Australia have got that moment, but England will always, you know, we stopped them winning and that that was what meant a lot to all the fans you could tell when they were behind Joffre Archer and whipping him up and the the duel with Matt Wade you know the the stairs from Archer it was back to that kind of classic one-on-one cricketing duel that people and love. for Root you know because his captaincy is under fire and England have got a, a really they've got a, a reputation for not losing at home and he yeah. needed not to lose I mean I personally I think that England got really lucky Australia for me over the five matches I'd I, do videos and you Ali do work every day on the test series and after every day on the balance of the pretty much 25 days 24 days we've had in the series we've been talking about Australia is just that little bit better than England 
and normally that would result in Australia winning a series. The fact that they didn't, there are a lot of factors involved. One of that is, I think, the Australian exhaustion, uh, bad decision-making at the toss, yes. But also England have just had some players who have emerged from a fog of mediocrity to drag themselves over the line and to hold on to that you know, undefeated position. And that is so brilliantly English, isn't it? In a way, we didn't quite deserve it, but we've got heroes that made it happen and cricket needs heroes in England. I feel like somebody around here is celebrating because I can hear a massive booming bass coming from I wonder if that's coming from, from the dressing room, but it's not. It's somewhere behind us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right, I can feel don't it. I don't know who that is, but they're enjoying themselves. Is there anyone in this Ashes squad, this England Ashes squad, that you would not take on tour this winter? That's a really Ooh, tough yeah. question, that one. But what about I mean, Jason Roy? Well, yeah. Oh, he wasn't, I suppose, yes. He's, but then he would you squad? play him in the middle order? No, I wouldn't, because I would keep... I tell you, if there's one person, and this is a bit controversial, out of this squad that I might give some time off to, it's Johnny Bairstow. I mm. think that for two years, he came off the back of the most prolific year that a wicketkeeper has ever had with the bat. When was that? 2016, I want to say. 2016, yeah. And in the last couple of years, his batting has deteriorated, his techniques deteriorated, his obsession with having the gloves has, I think, affected what he's doing. And I'm not sure England can play Butler and Bairstow. And it's a really tough call and a tight call, but we all have personal preferences. To me, ultimately, Butler's got the tighter technique, has got a higher ceiling as a batsman. I think England look better picking their best wicketkeeper. And at the moment, the best wicketkeeper in England and possibly the world is Ben Folkes. I was about and, to say, what are you doing with him? Yeah. Well, I'm bringing him in and then him, I'm, yeah. ta- and I'm making Butler a batsman mm. and I'm saying to Butler, you're going to bat up yeah. the order, not as this luxury character that's supposed to be able to come in at some point and hit this game-changing 100 when you're 240 for four because they either don't get to 240 for four or five. So bat him as a batsman. And I say that with caution because... I think Johnny Bairstow has been an excellent player for England and I still expect to see him play white ball cricket but of all the players in the side at the moment he'd be the one I think would be the most established player that needs to be let go perhaps for a while. Denley felt the most on the precipice I think for me and until the 92 you, you can't now not take him at all and he's absolutely earned that particularly after racing back after the birth of his second child and I think only about three hours oh no he didn't get three hours sleep did he because he came back to the hotel and got a good 10 hours I think before he then came out to bat but um passing 53 times in the last three test matches has shown that yes he'll, he'll he'll go I'm sure that they'll take another one of the young Openers as well, alongside Rory Burns. So you've got Zach Crawley and Dominic Sibley. But um, yeah, I think Denley, Denley's got a ticket. Let's talk about scheduling. During the Headingley Test, Joe Root played his 100th day of cricket in a year. Some of the players have looked tired during this Ashes series, haven't they? And next year we've got the new competition, the 100, to fill any gaps the players might have had in their diaries. How much cricket is too much? We love cricket. Uh, 365 days. I mean, we we need to play a game on Christmas Day, don't we? Twitter lights up when there isn't a match. You know, oh, great, no cricket on on a Tuesday or anywhere in the world. Uh, Yeah, you make a solid point, but I want to point out, Ali's probably done similar I'd have been to 91 days of cricket oh, by the I, end of this I, series I haven't counted <laughs> yeah, I don't think 90, I 91 now I know I haven't played but come on man up uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a serious question it is an issue it's not really about scheduling it's about management I think that no you the, shouldn't have to manage I don't think you want your best players playing able to play at all times I get really disappointed when 
bowlers have to be rotated because you just want to know this is your best attack and this is what you've got but that just seems to be a distant, distant possibility, not the reality that, that we're in. You can't. You no, can't we can't, can't I mean, in the this, reality that we're in. This summer was berserk, wasn't it? Because there was a World Cup. Yeah. And then England wanted to cram six Test matches in. You might argue that the Ireland Test match is the one thing that you'd probably have taken out. Not no disrespect to Ireland, but you might have thought, well, it's what they used to do when the World Cups were in England in '79 and '83. They played four Test match series because there was a World Cup. And actually, those World Cups only lasted for three weeks. So they took that into account then. I think going straight from a World Cup straight into the ashes was berserk. But I don't see that there's an easy and obvious solution to this. Some players, like maybe Joe Root needs to ask himself, is he a T20 player? Is he trying to push the T20 envelope that bit too far? Because if you're England captain, do you really need to be also trying to play T20 well enough to get a big bash contract or an IPL contract. But when you've got a world T20, I think if you took the world T20s out, then yeah, domestically, you know, you don't need to play it. I don't think we'll ever get to a stage realistically where you have, you know, separated or segregated sort of white ball and red ball teams simply because, well, at the moment there's too much of a crossover. I think there were eight players in the Ashes who were in the World Cup. Um, squad there is there's too much crossover maybe over a sort of generation there might be more of a, a split but then I also sort of think that'd be a bit of a, a sad thing as well because I'd like to think that there are those players that, that, that can do everything in all forms we have just been joined by the Guardian's Barney Ronnie. hello Barney hello how are you doing yeah I'm okay thanks um like Joe Root like England's players like the Aussies I'm really tired. <laughs> we do have that in common. You've just come straight from filing how many words? Uh, 900 words of absolute waffle. Which seems <laughs> Look to be out for that in tomorrow's what's, what's paper. Your, what's your favourite metaphor? You had an absolute killer line in one the other day. So what, what is, uh, it's about throwing a, throwing a vacuum cleaner into a skip. I particularly like that. Have you ever done that? I mean, it's quite... I like, have. Yeah, it's which, quite, is why, which is why I really empathise with, with the You've got to be really careful because yeah. the plug will often tail behind and it's, it's Ooh, this sort of deadly kind action. of whiplash effect. You've got to be very careful. Do you That's go handle first or sort of body first? Is it an upright who you're talking about, or one of those sort of Henry ones? This is very specific. <laughs> yeah. okay. My Hoover didn't present that button. He had a little button that pressed and it coiled up the yeah. lead. So yeah. all that was presented was the plug on the outside. That wasn't going to whiplash anything. Well, it's a problem. I've, yeah, I mean, you know, th- these are the kind of problems England, England selectors, Ed Smith, will have to wrestle with over the, over the months to come. We've just been talking about what to expect from the winter tour. Who's impressed? Who's not impressed? What do you see happening this winter? Well, I was just writing an article about that, actually. It's, um, it's kind of feels like, even though, I mean, sport, you can't help having, it's a bit cheesy, but you can't help having cycles. It feels like the end of a cycle now. I mean, not just with Trevor Bayliss going. And actually, Trevor Bayliss was spotted today over behind the pavilion in the Verve Clicquot enclosure as, as England were wrestling with Australia's uh, late middle orders. I thought it was quite nice because he probably does deserve a drink, doesn't he? <laughs> well, what, else, what, what else is he supposed to do? Listen well, to his know, ambient it, sound CD. Yeah, <laughs> look, look worried and stare at his laptop uh, for whatever, whatever good that does. But no, that was kind of a nice thing. And... Uh, there's a chance to, there's quite a few clogs in this team I, I got the feeling with this England team that 
there's no lack of talent. There's just some sort of weird holes and lacunas and bits that don't quite work. We've never quite worked out who's batting where. Everyone wants to be clustered around the middle order. And how do you solve that? How do you get new players into the team when everyone wants to bat at six? It doesn't seem to make much sense. And I think a lot of this will revolve around what they want to do with, with Johnny Bairstow, for example. Do you want him to keep playing as a wicketkeeper? Everyone says he should move up into the middle order, but he averages 28 in the middle order as an England player. Oh, it's all right. Dan's already dropped him. <laughs> Well, that was my conclusion as well. I mean, but then you say, well, does, uh, you know, do you bring in Ben Folks or Josh Butler should ideally be a wicketkeeper and, and, and bat a number seven, which he could be the world's best number seven, but can he keep wicket well enough? I, yeah, I Ben put, Folks is in. Yes, I, I put Butler up at four and turn him into a batsman. To me, Butler has the capacity to be England's AB de Villiers. It's just no one's ever really understood that. So they've thought of him as a wicketkeeper who bats. And the problem with that is that they've thought that therefore he must bat at six or seven. But if you watch him, until three test matches ago, he had faced 100 balls or more in test cricket more often than anyone else in world cricket since he came back into the England side, except Shea Pujara, and he was level with Virat Kohli. So he has the capacity to play that middle order innings, but if you're doing that from six or seven when you come in and score 105 for five, it's pointless. And he has looked a bit cooked from the World Cup. He did in the first couple of games, didn't he? But actually... Mm. He got better, didn't he? I I, I did look up some numbers. Having said that, I didn't have any numbers. I've just got to find where I wrote this down. Yeah, so Butler, 54 in his first six innings and 192 in the last four. So that shows an improvement. He's just an incredibly talented cricketer, isn't he? And he'll do whatever you want. He's not going to stand there glowering, saying, where am I going to bat in the in the style of certain other England cricketers you could mention. The the thing is, um, Ed Smith is a huge Butler fan. I'm not so sure. I mean, Ben Folk's an incredibly conventional pick in many ways, isn't he? He's a a very good wicketkeeper and a decent batsman. Um, I know Bayliss and Root were very keen on him, and uh, it was more their pick than than Ed Smith. So quite how that will work, who knows? I think the relationship between captain, chief selector and the new coach whoever that may be is really key it'll be really interesting it's, sorry to ask the question but because I don't know and I've been asked this question who do you think will be the new coach the names I've heard banning around Graham Ford Mickey Arthur what mm, they want to Chris Silverwood isn't it coach? David Gower told us that uh, Jason Gillespie well it makes a kind yeah. of sense doesn't it but yeah. Jason Gillespie has been deliberately taken the roles he's taken because he doesn't want to do mm. He's able to go back to Adelaide for the strikers. He's got a family there, hasn't he, Andy? And Andrew McDonald has also been suggested, but he's only just taken a job <laughs> with Andrew the hundred, so he surely like can't an quit before agent, he started. He? He's, yeah. he's up for everything. You know, if we get rid of Boris Johnson, maybe Andrew McCdonald. <laughs> Win a Sheffield Shield, you know. Yeah, he's he's already the coach of a non-existent team in a non-existent competition with non-existent fans. So, which we're all looking forward to watching next summer, guys. Thank you so much for coming and spending the last dying moments oh. of pleasure of this Ashes series with us and and we can now release you dan ali barney back to your homes and your loved ones and and to allow you to think about something other than cricket for maybe at least six weeks what do you do i mean what do what do you i know what barney does barney wanders around watching football which he cares for and i don't really mind it but essentially i ali am going to spend a week going hooray i don't have to go to work for a while and then by the beginning of October, I'm going to count down the days. The way I do it is I, I break every month from October to March down into thirds. And I say to myself that I'm X amount of the way through that third of that month. Wow. And I just try to tick off 
the miserable darkness and hopeless sense Dad, of misery. I feel like one that. of us needs to check on him every week. Should we set up a rotor? How do you get by? I'm, I'm disappearing off Australia, to a yeah. no, safari in the Serengeti, actually, in October. Thank you. She's going to go and look at animals. What are you yes. going to do, Emma? Go um, stroke I'm a tiger. actually going Lion to even. Chicago to play my violin next week. Well, bully for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, good luck with all that. Miserable yeah. <laughs> waiting, Dan. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast in England, you can turn off now, as it's time for me to thank our English guests and invite in our Australian friends to have their say. After the break, I'll be joined by Jeff Lemon, Mel Farrell and Jared Kimber. Before that, I'd like to introduce you to Zafar Kunial, who has been the Oval's poet in residence during this test match. His cricket poems have been published by Faber in a short collection entitled Six. Uh, Zafar, welcome to The Spin. Could you take us to the break with one of your poems, please? Yes, of course. Um, th- this is called The Opener, and um, it has something to do with a certain blonde-haired, curly batsman. The Opener was out early, and I came in for my first innings at number three, Gower's number, and my batting had shadows of his lazy grace, studded on the square telly and echoed in our framed oval mirror. Only I was right-handed, so I was proud in two directions, at going in and at being out, off the thinnest of edges, like Gower, a butterfly whisper after a couple of elegant air shots, wafting my bat, playing a perhaps away from the body, out in limbo in the corridor of uncertainty, then darting a look behind, the ball thrown like confetti to the heavens, half in celebration, half in appeal, which is where I pause the action, head turning west to east, ears half hearing the word out, slowed down, mid-stop, like a deer's voice sounds, mouth open, caught, a gaping field, some foreign corner of my eye, clocking the far finger raised to the sky and pointing out different ways in the moment's stopped air. My black curly hair, almost like my master's. When Utoxeter Cricket Club had to leave their beloved grounds of 60 years, it looked like it might be the end for the area's only club. Enter NatWest Cricket Force, an initiative created to support community clubs across the country. They helped them make a new home in a former cricket ground breathing new life into the space and the team. Why? Because NatWest believes cricket should be easy for everyone to play. It's paired up with the Guardian Labs to tell more stories about experiences like these. Read them at theguardian.com forward slash NatWest cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. Welcome back to The Spin, the Guardian cricket podcast that's standing on the oval turf, watching the England players celebrate in their dressing room and, frankly, couldn't be happier. It's time to introduce our Australian guests. Earlier this evening, I sat down with Jeff Lemon, Mel Farrell and Jared Kimber to talk about what we'd all just seen. We asked our English guests who England's second best player of the series was. So it's only fair to ask you, who was the second best player in the Australian team? Do you want the sensible answer or the funny answer? 
funny one. It's Matthew Wade, <laughs> which is funny in and of itself. It, it's also funny that he made two centuries and still averaged 30, um, which is kind of impressive in itself. So. Mel? Uh, it would be, a, a, I guess, a cyborg hybrid between Josh Hazelwood and Pat Cummins. Well, Jeff, I was going to ask you, mm. because you have made your feelings about Pat Cummins clear, is he more crushworthy than Chris Hemsworth? Now. Oh, yeah, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, what's he done lately? Look, he was good in the... Was he the one in the Ghostbusters movie? There are too, too many Hemsworths. Anyway, there was, he was nice and, and harmless in that. But He is Thor. But, but, yeah, but Pat Cummins is really Thor. <laughs> He's so Thor Chris right Hemsworth now. Chris Hemsworth is CGI Thor. Pat Cummins actually swings the hammer, you know, actually is a god. No, in, he's in actually it. also, after bowling as much as he has, really Thor. Mm. <laughs> Uh, there it is. Go and, and that's consult. the end of the podcast, everyone. <laughs> consult the team doctor, Richard Thor. Next question. Is Steve Smith better than Bradman? Jared? No. Well, okay. Do you want, do you want more? <laughs> well, Bradman was tw- basically twice as good as his peers. Steve Smith's not twice as good as his peers. I, Michael Vaughan said some ridiculous thing that people in the 1930s bowled like Romanian club cricketers, which is just not true. Uh, he's been tested more than Bradman probably, and uh, Bradman was very rarely attacked on Twitter for things. Mm. But no, he's, he's not quite that good, but he's really good. Does he have to be better than Bradman? Why do you think he has to be better than Bradman? Why would you do that to him? Why can't he just be good? He's really good. He can just be really good. Steve Smith, it's okay for you to be really good. What do we think about how much better he can get, Mel? The scary thing is about him is that he was saying during the presentation that he wants to get better, and he's that sort of guy who is, is going to keep practising. What practicing. else is he going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's not got much else <laughs> in his life. So uh, un- unless his eyes sort of start to fail at some point or, or he has lots of injuries or, or something like that, mm. or mentally he loses it. But, but yeah, I think he could get though. better. Like, you watch him over a period of time and he uh, you could tell today in this second innings here he was really tapering off. The, the first innings he didn't look quite right either. I, I feel like I've got pretty good at reading Steve Smith body language. And the 17-18 Ashes, he was like this. He got to the, the fourth test in Melbourne. He he made 100, but it was on the most docile pitch you'll ever see. But he, he got he was out in the 70s there and in the 80s in Sydney. And he'd basically never done that before. He didn't get out when he got near 100. And he did that twice in that series. And so it just said that his fatigue was starting to creep in. And it seemed like that way here. Like he's so intense, but he can only do it for a certain period of time. It's like, you know, like, like 11 in Stranger Things where like she can flip a car over with her mind, but she can't do it over and over over again she's then got to recuperate and recharge the Steve Smith nosebleeds were quite off yeah exactly (laughs) and considering that is that the right character yeah that's the one yeah considering that how much better he has got over this series has gone along hand in hand with how much more pronounced his eccentricities and his mannerisms become isn't there a point at which he is basically just doing mime in the middle and forgets to defend his wicket. Is that when England are going to start being able to get him out? Well, the thing I found interesting is that the mannerisms are getting worse. I found it weird that people hadn't noticed them before because they've been there for quite some time. But the fact that they're getting worse, it feels a little bit like when you're the most talented person. I'm going to compare him to someone quite odd that no one on this podcast is is going to know much about, but Rakeem Cornwall. So Rakeem (laughs) Cornwall is this incredibly talented West Indies cricketer who is so much more talented than anyone else on Antigua that I don't think anyone ever said to him, do you know, Rakeem, perhaps, you know, you should get fit to go with that. There's a certain point where Steve Smith is so talented. If he was slightly less talented, Justin Langer might be maybe enough now with the spending all your energy doing dances between balls and just focus on what you're doing. There's a certain rabbit hole that he's gone into that, 
I'm not sure in long term will help him with all these different mannerisms and everything. As Jeff said, there's a lot of energy that goes into being Steve Smith. I think he should spend more of it just focusing. But maybe he's letting his freak flag fly. That's harder to say than <laughs> I thought it was going to be. His freak flag fly. It's like four million days into this summer. Uh, let's go to... <laughs> point out that um, the England players' kids are out in the middle now having their own little game of cricket, which is the second time this summer that I have seen the England players' kids out in the middle after an England victory, in fact, because the last time was the World Cup final. Uh, But this time they're actually playing cricket. A few playing misses, to be fair. (laughs) Back to this game. Did Tim Payne throw away the chance of a series win? Uh, yes. Top? I mean, yes, it was a, a massive botch. You have Steve Smith has made 16 centuries in the first innings of a test match. He has made zero centuries in the fourth innings of a test match. He averages 30 in the fourth innings of a test match. He averages 95 in the first innings of a test match. If you have the opportunity to let him bat in the first innings of a test match, maybe that would be a really good idea. Well, I mean, they still could have pulled it off if they'd played better held their catches and batted better in the second innings but it was um, a structural blunder it was a strategic blunder at the time and it proved to it, it turned out that way it was a funny one because it, it, i mean he he seemed to say that he was 50 50 as well and there's there are other people former captains who would say if you're 50 50 you're probably better to to bat first but i love if that you're he, 80 20 yeah, you, you should probably bat first but uh, but i also love that he admitted in the the post match that he's not actually very good at reading pictures so it's quite poor tim Payne. he admits he's, he's not very good at reading pictures he's also the worst yeah. captain around at, at reviewing and and judging reviews yeah. so there's a couple of little captaincy things that perhaps he might want to look back on. I think it's fine to admit you're bad at reading pictures if you go the conservative route and do the yeah. basic thing every time. Don't it's go probably, funky. It's probably not great to admit you're bad at reading them if you then act on the way that you think that you've read them. It was the only good day to bowl in this test series though to be fair so I'm not sure yeah. he read the conditions that bad it's just that they played really poorly and they may have made the bigger mistake when they picked and if, if you have Mitchell, Mitchell Marsh's job is to bowl seam up stump to stump why would you pick another guy to do that as well yeah. in Siddle mm. and to be fair no one expected Siddle to bowl that bad he's you know he's a parsimonious man um, and for him to bowl like that I think it was surprising but yeah the, yeah. the, the stuff at the end was more I mean you know they talk about presidential voice it was very, he sounded very uncaptainatorial um, <laughs> at the press conference he sounded a little bit like you know what I could have been working at Kookaburra. He has said that about 12 times in this tour. And <laughs> at least. Was, and when he was up there going, oh, I don't know about pitches, I was thinking, do you know that Kookaburra job would be really good, mate? It's probably got, you know, a pension, <laughs> um, there's benefits, maybe some travel, I don't know. Uh, maybe get a free bat, uh, you know. Can I just say, so it is a bit of a bizarre situation, though, that only happens in cricket where you have to, they have to go out, an Australia team has to go out and celebrate and spray champagne when they've just lost. Well, they did that here in 2015. England got absolutely mm-hmm. wiped off the park and then came out and celebrated winning the Ashes 3 you know, it's, these are yeah. complex emotions that these players have to digest and cope with, I think. It's part of the confusion of the retention yes. and the winning being different things because you, I mean, England should have celebrated in 2015 after they won the, the third one at Trent Bridge, was it? Um, and, and sealed it. You know, they should have had their celebrations then and they didn't do it until here. You, that was easier to avoid. But this one you couldn't avoid because Australia had retained but hadn't won yet, so you still had to wait. But that was the most token spraying of champagne I've ever seen. <laughs> well, like, it was, yeah. yeah, it was so bad. But, and, and also, but it had a slightly different feel even to when that happened last time you, mm. you were referring to because it was a drawn series. Yeah. And, and so it had even a weirder, like, 
Uh, who do we sell? Let's what? all celebrate for dancing yeah. with our brother and sister. Yeah. Um, also, Justin Langer, because of the yes. way the change rooms are here, Justin Langer, they're so well lit. They, no one no one talks about this enough. The oval change rooms are always so well lit because there's like a white wall and there's nowhere to hide. So Justin Langer giving the slow clap as Australia won. And he, he looks angry. like he's going to headbutt everyone on the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you don't get that enough. And I think that's, yeah. that's a credit to cricket because other yeah. sports have a proper end. He was clapping like he was doing it in sync with the footsteps of someone walking the plank on his ship. You know, it was, there was murder in his eyes. And he had to, well, the Australian captain had to pick up no fewer than three trophies, I think. And then share one of them. And then share one of them. It's a peculiar situation. So how will this be seen back at home this summer? Semi-finals of the World Cup, two all draw in the Ashes, retaining the end. Are Australians happy with that? No, I don't think people are... Well, I don't know what everyone thinks. There are definitely people saying retaining is good. If they'd been 2-1 down and won here and retained, then that would have been seen as a victory. But to be 2-1 up and botch it, and they botched it at Headingley when they should have won this more convincingly, and they should have at least drawn here by batting first, making a big score in the first two days, and putting it at a point where they couldn't lose. You know, Then you're saying, well, England, if you play well enough, you might draw, but who cares? I feel like hearing you talk about this series and hearing how England fans and followers have talked about England series, nobody's really gone home happy. <laughs> Everyone's feeling pretty <laughs> well, the something. Yeah, cricket's the winner, nobody else is. <laughs> Well, I feel. I mean, it feels like everyone's got something about. It. I mean, England's drawn everything and managed to win one trophy. It's incredible how well they've done without winning anything. <laughs> it is. I, I don't know. I feel. Well, I haven't surveyed everyone in Australia either. Yeah, lazy. But I, yeah, I intend to. Say right. the night's young. Door to door or by phone. Uh, well, the night is young. I'm, I'm over here, so I might just you know go online and ask everyone in We're Australia. We're all on Facebook, so it's fine. <laughs> This sounds like Twitter poll yeah. written all over it. I always think that Australians care more about the Ashes and the World Cup simply because the world they've won World Cups. It's not like a completely, yeah. this was a thing we were never able to do. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's another World Cup. You've got a World Cup trophy in the boot that's yeah. annoying because you can't fit the cricket kit in there and you forget it's there and you haven't taken it out. The, the, the thing that they can say something that hasn't been done in like 18 years, that'll be something. But I, I mean, I, I agree with Jeff, it'll, it'll feel a bit weird. Whereas England, I mean, they've wanted this glorious summer that inspired people and everything else. I kind of think they've got that. It's made a huge impact. The World Cup was hugely influential in getting cricket out there and being on free to air and getting people talking about it everywhere. And the thrill of the, what, what Ben Stokes and Joffre Archer and, and those guys have brought in this series as well. Jack Leach. I mean, we were at the Oval where Jack Leach was being cheered they were all standing up stand up if you love jack leach while he's batting who saw that at the start of the series i think i wrote that actually i don't think you did (laughs) so i mean i think i think england can sort of maybe walk away going look it's been an okay summer and i think england can also uh, pat themselves on the back that they didn't really have the worst openers after all (laughs) (laughs) i think everyone had the worst openers Uh, i don't think there's a good openers in this i think being average and a you know, stealing some runs at the end does not make you any better. Although Rory Burns is probably looking around going, I am king. Yes. I am God. Feed me grapes. Yes. In the land of the blind, I am the one-eyed man. <laughs> yeah, well, look, they, they had 
They had a couple of players who got more than 60, you know, once or, or more than one occasion. So Australia's best opening partnership was 18, and that was today. Solid 18. Solid, no very oh, good 18. Really, really good 18. Uh, it was dross. Australia botched the opening stuff so badly. Cameron Bancroft should never have been in the squad. Then he was. And once he was in the squad, he was in the team. And once he was in the team, he should have at least been kept in the team for maybe a third test to see if he could do something. Marcus Harris probably also shouldn't have been in the squad, but was instead of Joe Burns, who should have been in the squad. And then Usman Khawaja should probably have been opening, but couldn't because he'd already been dropped from number three. So they just managed to hash it so cataclysmically. And Warner had a bad series, and you can't budget for that because he's one of the best players Australia's ever produced, and he would have played all five no matter what had happened. But they could have at least... I mean, you know, Bancroft being able to face 60 or 70 balls to make 14 looks pretty good when you put Marcus Harris in, and he doesn't do that. Look, I mean, they made a mistake when Peter Siddle didn't open. I think we all agree. (laughs) (laughs) The Ashes have finished too all, but if the World Cup taught us anything, it's that sport's supposed to end with an outright winner. However you get there. So we at The Spin are proposing Ben Stokes and Steve Smith go head-to-head to to settle the Ashes. So what should the format be? What is the winner-takes-all decider between Stokes Uh, and Smith? I think it should be a staring contest between Matthew Wade and Joffre Archer. (laughs) Whoever looks away first loses. They'll be out there for three and a half days (laughs) until Matthew Wade gets an eyelid strain. I think it should be interpretive dance, just knowing that Smith couldn't lose that. That's a good point. I'm going to say jelly wrestling just because. That'd be funny. Who would you prefer covered in jelly, Stokes or Smith? I wouldn't prefer either. I don't actually like jelly. Can, can we have Pat Cummins Stokes. and Josh Hazel would do it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just all throw jelly at the bowlers. <laughs> That's pretty much what they were doing at Steve Smith. <laughs> This has been a really long summer for you guys travelling around England. Jeff, you're heading back to Australia. Mel, you're off on holiday. Jared, you've got a new job in Scotland. (laughs) So looking back at your last four months on the road, what's been your personal highlight? Four months? I was in West Indies as well. (laughs) I'd like that counted. (laughs) I mean, it's a ridiculous... I mean, there's been so much great stuff. I think there's been a lot forgotten about how great it was at Ireland tormented England on day one and as great as the World Cup final was and as great as Ben Stokes innings was and I've seen some incredible cricket and I've seen Afghanistan play but for me seeing an associate nation come in that no one wanted and almost embarrass England at Lords and Jack Leach I'll never forgive him you know uh, that for me says everything about cricket and where we can go from here isn't it great that the ashes are still around you know over 100 years after they started wouldn't it be great if Ireland and Scotland had you know a similar thing going on for the next 100 years that people actually watched and you know that's where I want cricket to go I want everyone to be able to play at women and men disabled uh, cricketers and and I think that's where it should go and that's why I think the you know watching Tim Murta destroy England was probably my highlight of the summer although to be fair there was a really good meal I had at Edgebaston one day. <laughs> the eaten mess at Edgebaston will also live long in Jeff Lemon's memory. Well, it's a highlight of every summer, though, <laughs> so that's not specifically this one. In terms of this one, look, being at the World Cup final was... It was like being at the Women's World Cup final in 2017, thinking, you know, I, I get to be here at this moment. I get to feel the electricity of an audience that is absolutely losing their minds. I, I get to be near something that that shocks you when you touch it you know that was amazing 
and then to have that happen again, basically the World Cup final, but in Test match version at Headingley. So probably that moment, going down to sit in the Western Terrace, and, and it was the blithe confidence of the England fans at, at, at nine down with about 60 runs to get who were just still going to the bar and getting full rounds in, <laughs> like wandering up, like, I'm not worried about the next five or six minutes I'll miss while I'm at the bar, and I'm confident I'll have 20 minutes to finish this fight. You know, I just, I love that. They just were, were so serene that it was going to happen and then so euphoric when it did it's hard it's hard for me i'd love to be able to pull out something different but i i will never forget that world cup final and the adrenaline that pumped through me i can't even imagine what kind of adrenaline must have been pulsing through those players they forget forget lifting a car up over a a baby They, they could have lifted up entire buildings to pull a baby out but um that afternoon at Headingley, I will never, ever, ever forget that in my entire life. Every ball, that last over, when, when, when um, Ben Stokes reverse slog swept Nathan Lyon into the Western Terrace, it was just from that was a moment when I really thought this we're seeing something amazing. But look, then probably the best moment after seeing all that, those final balls, was I was afterwards went into the press conference and I'd gone in late because I'd been filming. Joe Root was up the front doing his press conference and Ben Stokes was at the back behind all the cameras where I walked in and I just said, oh, say, oh congratulations, Ben, you, you big freak. And he gave me a hug and I don't think I washed for about three weeks afterwards. <laughs> that makes sense because it's about three weeks ago and you've been stinking. <laughs> I have to say, every Australian guest we've had on the podcast this summer has been extremely kind and generous. So I would like to thank Jeff, Mel and Jared on behalf of their fellow countrymen and women. Thank you for what's been a wonderful sporting summer and one that finished on as even, well, even enough. England still won that World Cup semi-final. Goodbye. The Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.